inequality killing us all? We're in a situation where our health is deteriorating through no fault of our own as individuals. The fault is our collective efforts as a society. We spend close to half of the world's health care bill, yet we have perhaps 100 million people who are either uninsured or lack sufficient health care insurance. This is crazy. That's Stephen Bezruchka, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Stephen Bezruchka, Inequality Kills Us All. In the 1950s, the United States had among the lowest mortality rates and highest life expectancy in the world. Today, other rich nations and quite a number of poor ones have better health outcomes than Americans. Why? How can the U.S., probably the wealthiest country in history, do so poorly? Starting with Reagan in the 1980s and the fervent embrace of neoliberal economics by the ruling class, we've seen an overall decline in health and life expectancy, along with huge gaps in income. The causes of our inequality and subsequent poor health indices are political. Thus, remedies must also be political. As Dr. Bezruchka says, our future work needs to focus on exposing ways in which rampant social injustice affects not just our economic well-being, but also our prospects for a healthy life. Inequality, he says, kills. Our guest today is Dr. Stephen Bezruchka. He's on the faculty of the Department of Global Health and the Department of Health Services at the University of Washington. He worked for many years as an emergency physician in Seattle. He's the author of Inequality Kills Us All. He spoke in Seattle in mid-March at an event organized by Washington Physicians for Social Responsibility. And now, Stephen Bezruchka. So what should we consider as being vital to our lives? Yeah, I think it's a good question. The, The key word is vital. If you go to a doctor with a problem, very likely she or her assistant will measure your vital signs, blood pressure, pulse, temperature, a few others, to get a sense of how vital you are, that is, how alive you are. When I worked as an emergency physician and someone came to the ER, one of the first steps in assessing how critical that person's problem was, was uh, to take vital signs. If they were talking sense, had a normal pulse and blood pressure, I could take my time getting to him or her. But if she was not rousable, had a blood pressure of 60 over 40, and a weak pulse, I'd be there in a heartbeat. Can't live uh, very long if your vital signs suggest the Grim Reaper is coming. So these days you can get devices, including smart watches, to measure your vital signs. I'm told an Apple Watch can call 911 if it thinks your vital signs are critical, such as in a car crash. So apparently now it's a common issue with dispatchers receiving emergency calls from skiers who fall on the snow slope and the watch can't distinguish that from an automobile collision. So being alive or dead is vital to an individual person. What about a country or state or city? What should the vital measurement be there? 
like that of an individual person. It should be how alive or dead that population is. That must be the most important measure made in in that geographical area. How many are alive? And for those that aren't, how old were they when they died? And I'm sure you out there would rather be alive than dead. So such measurements for a society are easy to obtain. Everybody knows their birth date, which is recorded by the state. And uh, you don't know your date of death yet, but when that happens, it will be recorded. So a town, city, state, or nation can compile these records to come up with a measure called life expectancy, namely the average length of life if mortality rates didn't change. That indicator, uh, a reflection of the health of the people in that society, must be the most important vital sign. So how alive are Americans? Well, we're not very alive if, and that is, we don't live very long if the standard is comparing how we're doing in the past or compared to other countries today. That should be the biggest concern in the United States, more important than surveillance balloons in the sky or inflation or bank collapses or lifestyles of the rich and famous. A federal agency, the National Center for Vital Statistics, a branch of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the Department of Health and Human Services, produced a report in December 2022 pointing out that our life expectancy in 2021 was 76.4 years, which had dropped from 77 years in 2020. There was no mention of the continuing decline in American life expectancy over the last few years, and no mention of comparisons with other nations. Other media sources looking at past reports provide that information. They said our life expectancy was now what it was in 1996, and the decline from 2019 to 2021 was bigger than any drop in the last hundred years. We should be very concerned, but we're not. Besides recognizing we're dying younger than before, we need to ask why. A quick answer is our over 1.1 million deaths from COVID-19, considerably more than any other nation. But our lifespan has not been increasing or was declining since 2015, well before SARS-CoV-2 struck. Another answer found in the media comes from our stratospheric rise in drug overdose deaths. I'll speak more to this later, but point out that for neither COVID nor drug overdose deaths is the why question asked. So what should our health outcomes be for the richest and most powerful nation in world history that spends half of the world's health care bill? How are other nations doing? Well, people in all the other rich nations live longer lives. According to the United Nations, or even our Central Intelligence Agency, who tally health outcomes for countries, quite a few poorer nations have better health. They include Chile, Thailand, Slovenia, and the Czech Republic, among many others. Given the choice, I'd rather live a longer life than a shorter, sicker one. The longest-lived country since 1978 has been Japan. They live about eight years longer than we do. 
To grasp the significance of those eight years, if we eradicated our three leading killers in America, heart disease, cancer, and COVID, we'd be close to Japan's health. Japan's health is so much better than ours that if we got rid of our three greatest causes of death, we would only be close to, but not equaling, Japan's life expectancy. Whenever the media reports that American life expectancy as being lower than that of other nations, they don't present what those differences mean in, in, in years as I have. Must be healthy behaviors that the Japanese engage in that we don't, right? The sushi they eat. In one of Japan's healthiest prefectures, Okinawa, the mainstay meal consists of pork fat and noodles. Visiting the market there, I found huge slabs of pork fat that people buy along with various flavored cans of Spam. It's a delicacy there. And from personal experience, I can verify this is what they eat. The secret? They don't eat too much. Another discovery is that more than three times the proportion of men smoke cigarettes in Japan than in America. Those who've been to Japan can attest to the large numbers of male smokers everywhere. There are other more important factors uh, than bad health habits, such as eating pork fat or smoking cigarettes, that impacts how long you live. Let's explore what the health department in our healthiest state, Hawaii, writes as most important in impacting health. They use a mountainside metaphor, which people there can relate to. There's a high ridge on the mountain that leads to a cascading waterfall streaming to a, a river flowing into the ocean. Their graphic distinguishes makai, or to the ocean, or downstream effects on health, from mauka, or upstream, or to the sky, or root causes affecting health. Where the river enters the ocean on are the behaviors such as smoking and physical activity on one side. On the other side is health care. The health department in Hawaii puts health care far downstream, much less important than what lies above. Where the waterfall drops, they list what are the, the social determinants of health, namely racism, poverty, pollution, income, and others that are more important than health care or behaviors. Then above that, socioeconomic conditions, and finally the most important is political context and governance. Our healthiest state considers politics as the most important factor impacting health. What does that mean? Well, in my quest to understand what makes a society healthy, after much research, I settled on two factors as being most important. One is the amount of economic inequality in a population, and the other is the attention given to early life there. These two are inherently political. That is, they're under our control through the democratic process that exists in the United States. We can do something about our dying young. But first we need to know that our lives are not as long or healthy as they could be for reasons that go beyond personal behaviors such as smoking, diet, and exercise. 
So in our world of misinformation, disinformation, false facts, and deep fakes, how do we come to know something is true? I used to think medical care and personal behaviors mattered most for health. That is why I became a medical doctor. I was a vegetarian for years. Then I came across the data I've shared about Japan and cigarette smoking there. I couldn't resolve those findings. I had to understand what was going on and to change my mind. I discovered that changing your mind is one of the best ways of discovering whether you still have a mind or not. I've had to think critically and make many changes. So I went to public health school with my question of what makes a population healthy. The Johns Hopkins School of Hygiene and Public Health, as it was called then in 1992, was the first and still the biggest public health school in the world. There, I learned that social and political factors mattered most for making a society healthy. Next, I came across studies linking income inequality and health. There are now some 500 or so studies linking economic inequality with health outcomes. They fit the criterion to say inequality causes worse health. A large part of my book, Inequality Kills Us All, addresses the key role of economic inequality in producing worse health. Take mass shootings, which are almost a daily occurrence in America. The Secret Service released a report this year addressing the issue. They talked about how shooters experienced stressful life events, had histories of aggressive behaviors, and were retaliating for perceived wrongs in their lives. Nowhere was U.S. inequality mentioned. Studies demonstrate that mass shootings occur where there is high income inequality and the presence of great wealth. Living in such places is very stressful and might make some act out aggressively and try try to right wrongs they had experienced. So inequality is a root cause of so many problems that are not addressed in this country. Instead, we are told it's a few bad apples, instead of recognizing the whole orchard is rotten. The other critical discovery was that early life lasts a lifetime. As we go from the erection to the resurrection, the first thousand days after conception are roughly when half of our health as adults is programmed. During the first nine months of that that you spend in the womb, the fertilized ovum, now called a zygote, divides 42 times to produce a newborn. There are only five more cycles of division to produce you out there listening to me. Cell division is a very sensitive time when environmental and emotional factors can affect the process. That makes the first nine months a critical period in shaping what kind of health happens to the resulting adult. By the time you're blowing out two candles on your second birthday cake, Many of the cards in your adult health deck have already been dealt. So healthier societies privilege those thousand days. Consider having paid time off after you deliver a baby. Only two countries in the world with populations over a million do not have a national policy of paid maternity leave. One is, of course, the United States, and the other is Papua New Guinea, half of a big island north of Australia. So our stingy early life conditions end up sacrificing our health.
I'll go into that later as well. Just keep in mind two thoughts. One is, is how important political choices are that decide who gets what share of the economic pie. That's the inequality we produce in America. And the second is how early life is structured here. Let's go back to measuring vital signs. So what are normal vital signs? When you see a healthcare worker who measure, measures yours, there are ranges for what is acceptable or normal. Your blood pressure may be 120 over 80 or 100 over 60, but not 220 over 150 or 60 over 40. The last two are not normal. What is normal for the vital signs of a nation? They should be what the healthiest nation has. I mentioned that each rich nation tallies birth and death records that are reported, and they're good estimates for other countries that don't record vital events. When I was a medical student at Stanford University in the early 1970s, in a page of notes that I wrote, in 1951-53, United States had the lowest maternal mortality of all nations. There were 67 deaths per 100,000 live births. I then wrote that by 1966, quite a few nations had achieved lower deaths in, of women in childbirth than America did. Same was true for infant mortality and life expectancy. We did well in the early 1950s, but other countries outpaced the U.S. in improving health over the next 15 years. Today, the lowest number, under two maternal deaths, occurs in a few countries, while for the United States, our death rate is more than 10 times higher than the best. And if you're an African-American mother, the number is about what it was for the entire country in the, 19, in the early 1950s, over 60 deaths per 100,000 births. Think of that. What we achieved in the early 1950s for childbirth-related deaths is still what African-American mothers face today. Childbirth deaths in America are rising in contrast to what is happening in almost all other nations, which makes the news today. They tell stories of famous black mothers who almost died during pregnancy. Repo receiving poor medical care is typically the reason presented. But that is only part of the answer. The stress of racism is a major cause, too. The same is true to other measures of deaths, such as in infancy or adulthood. Namely, African Americans do not achieve the levels of white Americans. A typical response relates to the finding that black Americans do not have the educational achievements of whites, they need to graduate from college. But the evidence doesn't back that up. Look at infant mortality rates, namely how many children born die in their first year of life. Some 50 nations have lower rates of death than the United States. I often have my students do a calculation of how many infants die every day in America that wouldn't if we have Japan's, Slovenia's, or Nor Norway's low rate which are all below two deaths per thousand births. The U.S. number is about 5.5. Calculation shows that about 35 infants die every day in, this, in America that wouldn't if we had what we 
what I would call a normal infant death rate. Consider the number of deaths from police killings here that make the news. Horrible tragedies such as Tyree Nichols in Memphis, an African-American who was killed by six black police during a traffic stop in January. The estimates of such headlines, uh, such killings, number of over a thousand a year, or three a day. These make the headlines as they should, but not the 35 infants every day. The scenario is like going into a newborn nursery and lining up 35 infants, then either beating or shooting them to death, then return the next day and do it again and again. If we knew about it, would we tolerate this carnage? I hope not. Let's further explore infant deaths in the United States. There was a full-page story in the February 19th 2023 issue of the New York Times, and it presented the data I'm reviewing here. Exploring the role of family income for white mothers, the richer your household is the lower the infant deaths. But this is not true for black mothers. They point out that the richest black women have infant deaths at the same level as poorest, the poorest white mothers. Same is true for education. Namely, college-educated black mothers have the highest rate of infant deaths across all other racialized groups. Same is true for deaths of black women from childbirth-related causes. Getting a college degree is not the solution for dealing with racism in America. I want to put all this together with my two main points about. The title of my book is Inequality Kills Us All, COVID-19's health lessons for the world. Becoming a rich African-American mother is not going to solve the problem. Income or wealth inequality is killing us all. We live shorter lives because we're in a country whose goal is to make the rich richer than they ever dreamed possible. I know you say that's not what you're doing. Let's face the reality. Let's explore our nation's economics. The national debt is growing while facing a ceiling. We want to raise the debt ceiling. What's the alternative to taking on more debt? Let's make it personal. You've take, you have a loan taken out to pay for your education, something that's uniquely American. In other rich countries, higher education is mostly free, but not in America. Student debt is huge here. You can either borrow more money and increase your debt, or you can cut down your expenses, or you can make more money. What about a country that wants to have more money? How does a country make more money? Raise taxes. That's the same as making money at the national level. While a large proportion of the public feel the rich should pay more taxes, even more, President even though President Biden paid lip service to this in his State of the Union address and in the proposed budget, Congress is unlikely to do this. Why? Well, the rich and powerful control the political process in this country. Corporations have the right to contribute as much as they, money as they want to control politicians. This resulted from the Supreme Court's Citizens United 
decision in 2010. We have the best democracy money can buy, or the best plutocracy money can buy. Plutocracy is a fancy word for rule by the rich. So it doesn't look like taxes will be raised. Recall how in the early 1950s we had the best mortality outcomes among all nations. Back then we had very progressive taxation. The richest earners paid big taxes. The highest marginal tax rate then was 91%. If you were one of the top earners and made an extra dollar, you would get nine cents and the rest would go to the government. Nobody protested this is unfair. Today, the highest marginal tax rate is in the mid-30% range. If we take combined federal, state, and local taxes of all kinds, the richest 400 Americans pay the lowest tax rate of anybody, lower than any other group, including the bottom half of Americans. I hope you don't think this is fair, but it won't change without people power. Don't raise taxes as our agenda. Instead, increase the national debt. But in the 1950s, we had no national debt. It didn't begin until the rise of neoliberal economics in the late 1970s. And taking on more debt happens no matter which party is in power in D.C. When does it make sense to take on more debt? Getting a loan to buy a house makes sense if you can pay off the loan. Recall how banks made irresponsible loans for people to buy houses in the 1990s that borrowers had no chance of paying back. This led to the banking crisis of 2007 and 8. Then we bailed out the banks while homes were foreclosed. None of the bankers went to jail for this heinous crime. Instead, they received lavish bonuses from the money we gave to the banks to bail them out. The situation is even more extreme today. We didn't learn our lesson. So why is the United States taking on more debt now? We have a huge military-industrial complex that wants more and more federal money. And we're sending hundreds of billions of dollars to Ukraine. And we continue to lavish federal subsidies for rich corporations. These resources don't go to you or me. The other way out of our conundrum is to cut expenses. That is also what we're doing. Whatever federal and state benefits were available to help us through the COVID-19 pandemic have been cut. In Europe, they call such belt-tightening austerity. Here, one speaks of budgetary restraint. The government is supposed to cut expenses. But which expenses? Not those that go to the rich and powerful mostly corporations. That's where the almost trillion dollars we dole out to the military-industrial complex go. Instead of funding low-cost housing or Medicaid or Social Security or funding for national parks or education. That is what goes on today. This is bad news. We're in a situation where our health is deteriorating through no fault of our own as individuals. Recall how personal health-related behaviors are not to blame. The fault is our collective efforts as a society. 
which is still the richest and most powerful nation in world history. Together, we're not doing what needs to be done. How is inequality killing us all? All of us. Don't some escape? Consider that the healthiest people on the planet are never in the U.S. Many notables die before reaching age 60, such as Steve Jobs or Michael Jackson or Elvis or so many others. And the oldest old person at any one time is never in America. So how does inequality kill all of us? Well, income and wealth inequality produce huge amounts of stress. We're constantly making comparisons with others who have more than we do. They look better on social media. They have more followers. Their incomes are higher. They drive bigger, newer cars than you and I, and they live in McMansions. This makes you feel bad about yourself since you don't look so good. That's right. We blame ourselves for not achieving the American dream and becoming rich. Think of all the efforts made with selfie surgery apps, diet and weight loss programs, mindfulness advice, and the other ways we cope with stress from consuming three-quarters of the entire world's opioids. Sunday New York Times for February 26th this year had the opinion section devoted entirely to drug use in America, as well as the overdose crisis. More than 100,000 deaths a year come from so-called illicit drug use, and they point out how this is greater than at any point in U.S. history. Among root causes, they said, needed to be addressed were the need for more housing options, better food security, and access to basic medical care. They preached for harm reduction, such as safe injection sites, having drugs to reduce opioid toxicity available over-the-counter, and better treatment for the user. Recall the root causes for the Department of Health in Hawaii being political context and governance. Studies relate income inequality to drug use. The root causes of the overdose crisis are not being addressed. You're listening to Stephen Bezruchka, Inequality Kills Us All. This is Independent Alternative Radio. To get copies of this program, call us, 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's 1-800-444-1977. Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. A country that tried to address the root causes of their drug crisis was Portugal. They had followed the pattern established by President Nixon's war on drugs in the 1970s. Drug use increased, and many ended up in prison. In 2000, at a time when the use of heroin in Portugal was the second highest in Europe, they decriminalized all drug consumption. They saw their previous policy dealing with drug use was not working and tried something different, a public health approach. Drug use deaths declined in comparison to what was happening in other European nations. And Portugal is a considered healthier country by vital signs than the United States. If we eliminated all deaths from heart disease and cancer in the U.S., we'd achieve the lifespan of Portuguese. 
They're doing many things better than we are. Using drugs as a coping mechanism for stress in society has been around for thousands of years. Sigmund Freud, the father of psychoanalysis, used cocaine regularly. So did William Halstead, the pioneer of many surgical operations, who was chief surgeon at the Johns Hopkins Hospital and is considered the father of modern American surgery. So our incredibly high rates of opioid and other drug use can be explained by the social collapse of American society. Loneliness is at an all-time high. This is at least partly catalyzed by social media, which is something individuals do alone, rather than in a group effort, such as partying or otherwise socializing. Very few cars use the high-occupancy vehicular lanes, and we search for happiness by buying more stuff we don't need. Think of all the implications of this research. We live in a very highly stressed society. The United States has some of the highest stress of all nations. No wonder we use three-quarters of the world's opioids, as well as other drugs that help us cope with the stress we constantly face. Trying to reduce the harm from drug use in America is like addressing Americans being dead first by suggesting the provision of better medical care. Not a bad idea, but it is far from the mark. Healthcare is only a small player in producing good health in a nation. Along with personal health-related behaviors, that's the hardest concept to get Americans to take seriously. Our language defeats us. We invest in health, pay for health, get health, access health, and so on. We conflate health with health care. I recall former Oregon Governor Kitzhaber's phrase, Do you want health or health care? In the United States, we don't have either. We spend close to half the world's health care bill, yet we have perhaps 100 million people who are either uninsured or lack sufficient health care insurance to deal with medical issues. The leading cause of bankruptcy in America has been medical expenses. This is crazy. Another perspective asks why we consume such a large proportion of the world's opioids. We have a great deal of pain in America. There are two kinds of pain, physical pain and social pain. And studies show we have more pain than other countries. The pain of living in such an unequal society is huge. Stress creates social pain. Opioids treat social pain very well. This country has a big hurt we try to cope with. And the opioid delivery industry provides for that need. Instead of having to get your fix in a seedy part of town, delivery is now Uberized. You can get fast relief. Studies show that people living in more unequal countries use more drugs, and hence there are more deaths. Without addressing that inequality, we won't get very far. The other mostly unspoken factor relates to the conditions of early life in America, which I'm coming back to. We have learned that about half of adult health has been programmed during the first thousand days after conception. By the time you're blowing out two candles on your birthday cake, much of your adult health trajectory has been cast. 
How do you come to believe such a statement in a country where individual agency is the way to succeed? Using this advice requires us to choose our parents well. Before we're conceived, make sure your mother and father own their own home. Be sure your parents aren't poor. Of course, there are stories of individuals who grew up enduring the shackles of poverty but broke them and became billionaires. Recent studies have found that white, middle-aged folk, especially those without college degrees, are dying from deaths of despair. They believed in the American dream, the rags-to-riches transformation. But by around age 50, they realized this wasn't going to happen. The response was to use drugs, alcohol, and commit suicide. This phenomenon wasn't seen in other rich nations. Recall, we're one of two countries without a national policy of paid maternity leave. Under the conditions of the Family Medical Leave Act, passed in 1993, you're entitled to unpaid leave for four months. Your employer will hold your job for that period. But only the well-to-do can take such a leave to care for their infant. So this factor drives up our infant mortality. All the other rich countries offer paid leave during pregnancy, as well as do some states such as California and Washington. We need a national policy. One way to look at what countries do to support early life is to see how much money a nation spends on each year of life. Sweden, a very healthy country, spends more government money on the first year of life than in any subsequent year. We spend our money on remedial actions for a delinquent child after they enter school. We have no national policy for paid preschool, paid daycare, and many other expenses that must be spent to raise a child again in contrast to other rich countries. One other critical issue relates to bad things that happen during childhood. They're called ACEs, or Adverse Childhood Experiences. Studies at them be, looked at them began in the early 1970s at Kaiser Permanente in San Diego. These are grouped in 10 categories, representing neglect as physical and emotional, abuse as emotional, physical, and contact sexual, and household dysfunction, which included the presence of an imprisoned uh, person, mother treated violently, someone being an alcoholic or drug user, someone chronically depressed, suicidal, or in a psychiatric hospital, as well as not being raised by both biological parents. The more ACEs you had as a child, the more likely you were to become a teen parent, use intravenous drugs, take psychotropic medicines for mental illness, attempt suicide, and not live to be very old. ACEs are very common in the United States and are linked to income inequality. Enough of these misfortunes. I was a lone sheep bleeding about the bad effects of income inequality around the link to our health over 25 years ago. There wasn't much concern about the gap between the rich and the poor, but that's changed considerably today. And many recognize the bad, bad health effects of early life today. The media report our health decline 
too, as well as the poor health outcomes for African-Americans and the record-shattering drug overdose death epidemic. These represent giant steps for Americans as we recognize there's not a good morning in America today but smoke from fires. We're always being given health advice. In my book, I lay out tips for better health. They are, be born in a caring, sharing, and repairing society. Nurture strong family and social ties. Don't be poor. Don't have poor parents. Don't work in a stressful, low-paid, and meaningless job. Don't live in a country with high income or wealth inequalities, large health inequities, lack of time and resources for parenting, costly specialized inaccessible medical care. Whose responsibility is it to put that advice into place? Not you as an individual. Societies need to do this. Can it be done in America? Here I fall back on a concept enunciated by Eugene Debs, the labor leader and presidential candidate back in the 1920s. When asked what his greatest regret was about his lifetime struggle for justice, he replied, I regret that the American people can have almost anything they want under our Constitution, but they seem to not want much of anything at all. We have the power to create the society where good health is a natural outcome, something that doesn't depend on what we do personally to achieve well-being. We could smoke just like they do in Japan, yet not die from smoking-related diseases. Japan's a very especially interesting case study. At the end of the Second World War, we had destroyed Japan. With our occupation, we rebuilt the country. There were three main features in that process. We forbade Japan to have an army. Article 9 of the Constitution said they had to resolve all disputes peacefully. We put Article 23 into the Constitution, making the government responsible for making the public healthy. We decreased the huge inequality present there by legislating a maximum wage and by the most successful land redistribution program in world history. From a life expectancy estimate of 24 years in 1945, Japan saw the most rapid mortality decline ever. By 1978, it became the longest-lived country. This tested medicine works. We could either ask Japan to return the favor or give the ma and give the magic medicine to us, or we could prescribe it to ourselves. Our democracy allows this. But it won't happen until we recognize that good health escapes us and that medicine is, we need is what we administered to Japan. Now that I've completely depressed you, <laughs> what am I going to offer for relief? What steps can you take so we're not dead first? The last chapter of the book describes various ways to make America healthy again. <laughs> to begin with, you should do what you enjoy. If you don't enjoy doing something, it becomes an onerous task that won't last long. Do what you can do for a long period of time without requiring much money. 
I've been lucky that I could fund my habit by playing doctor for income, and many others have occupations to sustain them. Recognize that we have power as citizens in America. The most common way people give up their power is thinking they don't have any. There are strong forces at work to make us feel powerless. Working together, we the people can produce good health in America. What can one person do? Don't be one person. The African proverb speaks to this. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We must organize or die. As a teacher, I develop curriculums around the ideas in the book and require students to do community outreach exercises. If I told you to convene a community meeting and present what I've been talking about, few would. But if this is a requirement for completing a course and getting a grade, it gets done. So many of the chapters, many of the concepts in chapter 10 stem from what my students have taught me. As an employee, talk about these ideas at work. If you're an employer, convene a lunch meeting to discuss our health. If you belong to a labor union, there are many possibilities for engaging others. If you work in some segment of healthcare, talk about this to patients, their families, and co-workers. When I worked as an emergency physician, I would bring up population health ideas with patients and others I interacted with. Doing so gave me skills at presenting various ideas to different people. Develop skills to talk about what you've heard tonight. My students have to craft elevator speeches, the kind of 10, 20 to 20 second effort you can make while the elevator is going up or down. I tell them to practice their speech around dinner time when they receive a marketing call that is being recorded for quality assurance purposes. That means the caller won't hang up. There are many TEDx talks to present at. Meet with your elected representatives to discuss these ideas. They or their staff will meet with you. Be sure to arrive with as many supporters as you can muster. Support various legislative efforts going on by testifying or writing letters to promote bills that will decrease inequality and support early life. Attend public demonstrations and carry a sign about health in America. Even better, be in a group that carries a banner. Write articles for distribution on social media, newspapers, and other channels you have access to. YouTube has become a great site for presenting ideas. The same for podcasts. Join organizations working in health and in healthcare. The American Public Health Association is one national organization that has some progressive groups such as the Spirit of 1848 Caucus. The Washington State Medical Association is a local doctor group. The Washington State Public Health Association is another. They have regular conferences that are worth attending. Physicians for a National Health, Health Program is a good group to catalyze with U.S. health status ideas. Social movements, such as the Civil Rights Movement and the Anti-Vietnam War protests 
in the 60s were very influential. Today, police killings and abortion issues present opportunity. I take comfort in recognizing that social movements can't be predicted. Society is very fragmented. Indifference abounds. Hope is a discipline. Don't give up hope. Twenty years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by what you did. It is not enough to know the world. We must change it. If you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. Don't be missing in action. We must make America healthy again. Thank you. Comments, questions? That was a wonderful talk, Stephen. I'm wondering about the stress and inequality hypothesis, having lived and worked in Japan for a while. Stress is not absent there. Um, there was that pressure of the salaryman uh, trying to make it in kind of rather high suicide rates. So I kind of wonder how you square that with their life expectancy. So it, it, Japan is a very stressful society. However, everybody is stressed there. And uh, the socioeconomic gradient in, in health, the low-level manual workers seem to do better than the rich executives. It's kind of a paradox. Japan has many paradoxes as to what produces health. So, yes, they, they've imported our word, and they call it stresseru. Yeah. Thank you, Stephen. They did a nice study back in the early 2000s comparing wealth and health outcomes in England and here. But I, they only had diabetes and a couple other outcomes. And I'm curious about the wealthiest in this country actually don't live as long and do as well as other countries, but I haven't ever seen specific studies. Um, this one study I looked at, showed quartiles of um, the poorest in our country are less healthy than the poorest in England and up to the top, even the wealthiest of the wealthiest. So if you're Bill Gates, it's, you're not safe unless you move to England. But I, but I don't know the data really um, on it. I'm just saying this one study I saw. So there are quite a few studies now. The first one was Banks and Marmots in, uh, published about 1996 comparing disease in England and disease here, and England did far better. A variety of other studies have looked at household wealth and disease mortality in a variety of European countries and the United States. And at all levels, household wealth is much higher here, but we have higher death rates. I think the age segment was uh, 55 to 74, something like that. Many studies attest to the idea, A, we don't live long, we suffer from more diseases, and even the wealthiest don't escape. I think we can say that pretty, pretty strongly. I was also curious about the carceral system, because that also sticks out for the United States in terms of how many people we incarcerate. And I'd heard a statistic, I swear the other day, it was like something about taking three years off your life if you've spent a year in, in the carceral system or something like that. But I, I don't know much about it, so I was curious if, you, if that came up in your research for the book. So uh, to begin with, we house a quarter of the world's prisoners. You know, we're our population is 4% of the world. And this started uh, in the late 1970s. Before that, we weren't a carceral state. So one in 100 Americans is in jail. 
Our Declaration of Independence gives us the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The life, as I pointed out, is not a long one. Liberty is an illusion with one in a hundred Americans behind bars. And yes, uh, we're pursuing happiness, but happiness measures show us falling further and further behind. And actually, I haven't talked about gender differences, but women are seeing much greater drop in, in well-being than men. So one in a hundred Americans is behind bars. If you're African-American age in, in the 20s, male, it's one in 10 or one in 20. Now, why do we lock up so many? There's a, a few people have voiced, well, punishing the poor, uh, a sociologist at Berkeley titled his book that way. You know, we, we actually do lock up poor people. You know, the banksters never went to jail. And this will continue. I mean, ideally, we should be locking up the banksters rather than poor people. And there's a big movement to even do away with jails. I, you know, having lived in Nepal for, uh, you know, there were no jails there really. I mean, I eventually found one and photographed it. Most of Nepal is rural, and there's, and people take care of their own problems their own way. I would be for doing away with not only jails, but uh, reforming policing, too. Great talk. I, I, one of the things that's most disturbing to me, and probably to you, too, is how many Americans uh, have become Trump supporters, and how uh, the, the rise of autocracy here, as in other countries, is actually driven by voters, not by military takeover. Talk about all of those voters. Do you see a path to reconciliation? Do you see a way to build common ground? Do you see a way to decrease the polarization that we're facing now? Complex question, but the Trump supporters are disproportionately poor whites. You know, it's sort of like the deaths of despair. Either you kill yourself or you vote for Trump. Uh, <clears throat> and the rich and powerful are using this as a way to divide this country. If, if we could make the rich and powerful realize that they die, that they pay a very high price for living in America, that would be, we'd be making some progress there. You know, the rich and powerful don't number that many, but as I said, they're, they're not the longest lived by far, and the studies don't put them there as well. In many ways, this country has all, many of the remnants of a failed state. And I think the fact that we have this tremendous political polarization is not healthy. Thanks again, and I'm sorry to depress you so much. You were just listening to Dr. Stephen Bezruchka, Inequality Kills Us All. He spoke in Seattle. Dr. Bezruchka is on the faculty of the Department of Global Health and the Department of Health Services at the University of Washington. He's the author of Inequality Kills Us All. This program is produced by Alternative Radio. We're an independent nonprofit in our 37th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To get copies of today's program, Stephen Bezruchka, Inequality Kills Us All, 
and for his book with the same title, Inequality Kills Us All, just call us 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. <laughs>